Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast which brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. Lots of news to get through today, including Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Brighton Hove Albion as well. And of course, we will be bringing you any other news that we get in the meantime. Delighted to say that I am joined by our very own equivalent of Ryan Christie, and that of course is Duncan Castles, a hero to everyone in Scotland, uh, joining me, Ian McGarry, for today's pod. Duncan, a quick word about Scotland. We'll come back to them later in the Donkey Award, but a very pleasing night, I think, for everyone uh, from the motherland. Yeah, I, I think especially because of the way the team played. Um, I think those who have listened to a lot of transfer window podcasts will know that we recommended Steve Clark as a as a Scotland manager. In fact, uh, suggested that he wouldn't be a bad uh, fit to uh, Chelsea at one point when they were looking for managers because he's a he's a very accomplished, experienced, calm individual. And as as other journalists have pointed out, he is. Uh, Kept his head through the um, you know, the turbulence that usually surrounds the Scotland national team and stuck with what he felt would work, and he's put together a team that are difficult to score against and uh, performed. You know, I don't think it's unfair to say they were the dominant side against Serbia away in a playoff to get into the European Championship, and that is. A substantial achievement for a Scotland national team. On top of that, having played so well, lost the goal in the final minutes of the game and to one of the, I think it was the first shot on target that Serbia had had at that stage, I might be wrong. Uh, and you, as a Scotland supporter, you saw the old stories coming through again of um, so close but yet so far, but they managed to hold it together with a weaker team because substitute has already been brought on. Um, and ahead of those final minutes, got through the uh, the added time period, and um, and then won a penalty shootout. And this uh, remarkable statistic that Scotland have yet to miss a penalty in a competitive penalty shootout in their history. Um, not something you would expect as a Scotland supporter from a game of that magnitude. Not something we associate with the England national team, that's for sure. Miss, miss, as Gareth Southgate once famously said, uh, capitalising on his miss uh, at Euro 1996. On to the news, people. And Liverpool have once again fallen foul and unfortunately of the international break with regards to injury. News that Joe Gomez uh, is going to be out for possibly the rest of the season uh, after suffering a a freak injury in England training. We, of course, brought you news in last week's podcast that the have upped their pursuit of uh, RB Leipzig centre-back Diop Meccano. We'll come on to who they might be signing in a second, Duncan. Um, first of all, though, I would like you to give us an update on uh, Gomez's injury because Liverpool have been quite vague regarding the detail and the length of rehabilitation that we expect. Yeah, Liverpool uh, made an announcement on this yesterday saying uh, that he'd had successful surgery to repair a tendon in his left knee, um, said there no damage to any other associated knee ligaments and uh, would not put a timescale 
on his return. Um, what I understand is that the injury is a rupture to his patellar tendon, um, tendon that connect, connects the, um, the patellar, the knee bone, to the lower leg. Um, the time scale on that is typically a little bit quicker if things go well than an ACL injury, but it is a substantial um, injury. I'm being guided that he might be back in training in, in a, around six months time um, but then you also have the element of getting to performance level as opposed to being just available to play so it is a, a significant injury um, another bit of information is that patellar tendon ruptures are actually more common from non-contact injuries so in the case of Joe Gomez he went down with it it wasn't a tackle he was um, by himself on the training pitch and people have been saying oh that's uh, unusual and concerning actually the guidance I have is that patellar tendon ruptures are more common in that scenario than they are um, uh, through contact so I think that's a bit of reassurance to Liverpool fans it's the second time in his career that he has suffered a serious knee injury on England international duty and the second time with Gareth Southgate as manager. He ruptured his right ACL uh, five years ago in England under 21 duty. Um, this time it's his uh, left patellar tendon. Um, obviously the feeling at Liverpool is that this has been exacerbated by the schedule the players are being asked to play at present um, with Premier League, Champions League and then this this rash of, of essentially some of them unnecessary international friendlies um, that they're in the middle of at, at present. Um, Gomez, if you look at his career, hasn't actually had many sustained runs of uh, first team appearances actually being in the starting team probably only once previously in his career as he played such a density of fixtures as he's done at the start of this season and that it's felt has been a contributing factor um, talking to specialists they say look the players can adjust to this density of fixtures if you keep pushing them they will get stronger but in the process there will be tissue injuries like this one and like the uh, the other problems that other muscular injuries uh, players have suffered in the Premier League um, there's a feeling it is just too much for the players it's unfair on them and certainly this has a very very significant impact on the Premier League and, and I think on the Champions League because you now have Liverpool without their two starting centre-backs realistically for the entirety of this season. Um, they made a decision going into the season not to buy Jurgen Klopp a backup centre-back when they'd sold Dejan Lovren um, in the hope that they, that Gomez van Dijk and um, the, their other senior backups would be sufficient to get them through the season. That hasn't happened. Um, they now have to get through to January uh, to buy a replacement in and they have to try and do something which in terms of getting a high quality replacement in the January window which as we all know is not an ideal time to buy and not an ideal time to integrate a new player into the team with no pre-season training. Um, it's a window of opportunity for the other big clubs 
in the Premier League to get that title back from Liverpool. Um, they have done well up until this stage to get through the issues with Van Dijk. It's very hard to see them uh, continuing to, to deliver um, top um, results, results required to win a league title if no reinforcement is provided for Klopp in, the, in this next window. And on that note, Duncan, is there information that even before Gomez fell foul uh, of that freak injury in England training, there was a meeting between Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards, the head of recruitment, as well as other recruitment staff, in which he once again pressed his case uh, for a new recruit to be brought in in January. Uh, as we mentioned, Dio Pomacano is the number one target. They're also considering a move for Napoli's Caldo Koulibaly, uh, although he might be just slightly more on too expensive uh, based on what Napoli are asking for uh, in transfer fee, which uh, is still around 60 million euros. And uh, Liverpool are not willing to spend that amount of money on a 29-year-old player, despite uh, the fact that he is one of the top central defenders in Europe. There's another meeting that has taken place since Gomez's injury, which is understandable in the circumstances. And uh, I think Klopp, I think it's fair to say, will have made his case even more strong, given that he now has only Joel Matip as his senior central defender and two very inexperienced central defenders who look like they would be the ones to partner Matip in the coming games. It's really is a conundrum for Liverpool, as you say, Duncan, uh, with a title race as open as this, um, albeit only after eight games. Um, it's looking not so good in terms of Liverpool defending the title unless they do decide to spend in January. I think every team is going to have an issue this season. Certainly the, the, the stronger teams, the teams who are playing Champions League and Europa League, who've been handed um, unprecedented schedules. We're going to see muscular injuries. We're going to see... Um, cruciate ligament, um, further serious injuries to players in the Premier League this season. I think every specialist in the sport is in agreement on that. Um, and it it just depends who gets them, who gets hit with them. And I think the thing Liverpool have been particularly unlucky with is to lose two players in uh, such an important position and to lose... In particular, Virgil van Dijk, who's so important to the way they play. Um, we've seen Klopp talk about this. We've seen Pep Guardiola talk about this. I mean, Pep Guardiola was talking about the, the, the title race and he was suggesting that um, you know, a, a vast range of teams effectively had a, a chance of winning the, the Premier League this season. He obviously mentioned Liverpool, obviously Manchester City, but he included Manchester United, Tottenham, Chelsea, Arsenal and Leicester City um, as potential winners of the Premier League this season um, and citing the pandemic uh, and the effects of the pandemic on preparation time and on schedules uh, as being a, a factor in that. Um, look, uh, from a perspective of a neutral, it will obviously be great if we can get multiple sides competing for a title and we don't have one team running away with it as we did with Liverpool last season and Guardiola himself effectively conceding the title before Christmas. And better than you know, all the fascinating race we had between Manchester City and Liverpool 
the, the previous season. If we can get multiple clubs in there um, from a neutral perspective, fantastic. But you don't want to see it happening this way um, with players coming down with serious injuries being a being an important factor in it and players suffering with fatigue um, and and also I think with the the mental stresses of uh, of the, the the pandemic and the and the ways they're having to uh, prepare for games and keep themselves separate uh, from friends and family we've seen Ole Gunnar Solskjaer mention this on multiple occasions now um, and, I, and I think it is a factor the degree of factor um, we'll see but it, it is different this title race is different this Premier League season is different and we might get a very unexpected outcome off the back of it it's true I think um, lots been made of mental health um, issues during the lockdown and of course the COVID pandemic uh, in the general population um, and that does apply to footballers as well uh, and the psychological element which Solskjaer has raised that uh, as an issue as well as other um, managers at clubs is going to be a factor going forward so it's something that yeah I think you're right Duncan it's not just the fatigue and muscle strain it's also the psychological as well. Moving on to um, Manchester United and more bad results, Duncan. Uh, this time not on the field, but uh, two, <laughs> two bad results. One, the fact that their results were published a day early uh, by mistake <laughs> by their uh, American publishing firm who do this for them. And secondly, the results themselves, which are even more serious than a bit of um, preemptory uh, release uh, because their revenue, profit, etc., is significantly damaged obviously by the pandemic and the um, effects of the pandemic as every football club is experiencing um, but Glazernomics continue regardless with regards to how they treat the club. Yeah um, a loss of £30.3 million for the, the first quarter of this financial year um, effectively the first quarter of this season um, revenue down by almost 20% to £109 million. And this despite the fact that they took in extra broadcast revenue over the normal amount because we, were, uh, we had those extra games being played um, to finish the last Premier League season um, and other competitions. Europa League obviously relevant there in Manchester United's case, so revenue that they wouldn't get in normal summers. Um, sponsorship revenue down. Uh, by almost uh, 17, well, 17.1 million to 36.5 million. So that's a very significant reduction in, in sponsorship re revenue. Interestingly, United say that was primarily due to having no pre-season tour. So you get a sense there of how much, just how much money a club like Manchester United can make by taking its... Uh, its squad abroad for these pre-season tours, I mean, 17.1 million for uh, a few weeks and a few games is substantial additional revenue. Um, interestingly, they have uh, extended the revolving credit facility that they activated due earlier in the pandemic. Um, that's a 150 million pound revolving credit facility at, at relatively low interest rates. They've added another 50 million pounds to that, so they're now on 200 million. Um, clubs say to provide financial flexibility 
to support the club through the disruption caused by COVID-19. Um, salaries only up by 1.7 million, just 2.4%, uh, despite having to pay bonuses because they are now in the Champions League again. Most of the Manchester United players uh, get substantial increases in their salary when they're in the Champions League. Um, and that uh, is a result of dumping players like Alexis Sanchez and getting them off the wage bill. It, you know, the, the financial elements of it aren't great, um, but yet the Glazers have decided to pay themselves a dividend. So you, you have the club moving from profit sharply into loss and, and be, has been there for some time now. There was criticism over the, the payment of the dividend for the second half of the last financial year. Um, the excuse was that that had been decided pre-COVID. Now, well into the COVID period, they slip into that financial report that they will continue to pay the dividend at the same level as last year for January. Um, so at least a half year's worth of dividend. The total value of that last financial year was 23.2 million. So you're looking at over 11 million pounds of money coming out of the club to pay dividends primarily to the Glazer family, regardless of uh, the troubles the club have. And I think that will come as no surprise to the majority of Manchester United supporters who have been extremely critical of the way the Glazers have milked the club uh, in the ownership period. Um, one other interesting element to this, I think, is that the, the club has decided to have no conference call. So normally they talk to investors and allow investors to ask questions about their financial results and issued no guidance on revenue for the full financial year uh, due to the pandemic, which I, I find quite surprising because they've now been uh, in this pandemic period for over six months. They have they should have a good sense of where their overall revenues will be for the year, assuming we remain in the same conditions of playing football behind closed doors. So they should be able to offer guidance as if the situation remains the same, this is how much we expect to lose over the course of the year. But they're not doing it um, and they're not allowing questions to be asked of them. Um, and you know, it almost seems like they're using the pandemic as an excuse to, to hide um, some stuff that the investors may be happy with. They might may not have a problem with dividends continuing to be paid as they will benefit from some of the dividends themselves. But I think certainly if uh, if any or some Manchester United supporters were allowed to place questions in that conference call, one of the questions they'd like to be asked is why are you continuing to pay a dividend to primarily to one family um, when the club has taken such a substantial financial hit and in the last transfer window although you spent more than most clubs over the last three transfer windows you made a, a point that you wanted reinforce on right wing you made a point that Jaden Sancho was the guy you were going to buy you had an expectation you would get him and in the end the deal wasn't done because you didn't reach uh, the financial terms that and timing that Dortmund asked for it, yet there's still money to pay the Glazers' dividends. It does seem strange. I mean, even uh, in the biggest companies in the world, if a company makes losses, you tend to find that the uh, board members themselves uh, tend to turn down their beneficial packages 
with regards to bonuses and dividends on the basis that the company um, is making a loss. However, the Glazers seem to have different ideas about that. The other significant uh, part of that statement that was released, Duncan, was Edward Wood's words uh, around Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's project, um, which seemed to have been slightly inaccurately um, interpreted uh, as being an he has absolute confidence in Solskjaer, when in fact the words he used, he never said he had absolute confidence in Solskjaer himself, did he? Yeah, I think look, one of the things about being a journalist is you learn to be very careful in paying attention to the way statements are made, both in press conferences, both in interviews post-game, but particularly in written statements like this. Um, because it's very easy to give the impression uh, that you're saying one thing when actually when you look at the words in detail, you're not committing yourself to that. And, and this is a great example because the, the BBC Sports headline on um, this financial uh, statement from Manchester United is Man United absolutely committed to Solskjaer, says Woodward. What did Woodward actually say in that statement? He said, on the pitch... While there is still hard work ahead to achieve greater consistency, we remain absolutely committed to the positive path we are on under Ollie as the team continues to develop. Now, yeah, you can read that as the BBC have and say, absolutely committed to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Actually, what he's saying is we remain absolutely committed to the positive path we are on. And you can almost put in brackets under Ollie. Uh, it's not we are absolutely committed to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager, it's we are absolutely committed to what they describe as a positive path, which we can have an argument about whether it's a positive path or not. So at least in the way the BBC have reported it, I think that achieves a goal um, for Manchester United. Uh, I'm interpreting here, but my assumption is that what they wanted people to perceive that is as a uh, a message of support for Solskjaer, whereas should Solskjaer be removed, should results um, get to a stage where they decide they have to change and they act on the communications they've had with Maurizio Pochettino's people, which we've reported extensively on this podcast, they would be able to go back if asked about that statement and, and uh, say, well, actually we didn't say in that statement, if you read it carefully, the commitment was to the positive path. Uh, we decided subsequently that the positive path had been uh, strayed from, therefore we had to uh, divest ourselves of uh, Solskjaer and we're no longer calling him Ollie in a financial report. It will be the, the, the previous manager next time we talk about him. I think it's called hedging your bets, Duncan, um, with regards to the way that phrase was uh put out. Interesting as well, of course, as you pointed out, that it's a written statement with no phone calls, no questions asked, because obviously if you, there was an opportunity, and journalists do sometimes get the chance to be on this call uh, after with the investors to speak to Ed Woodward briefly, then they could have pressed him on exactly what he meant by we have confidence in the positive path, etc., etc., so, um, yeah, I think that it's the, the devil's always in the detail and the semantics there 
um, are not committing themselves to anything with regards to Solskjaer's future. Uh, certainly um, not in the long term, that's for sure. We'll see when uh, the Premier League returns, of course, uh, the weekend after next. Our, uh, Manchester United, if they're still on a positive path, given they're currently 14th in the table. We move on, Duncan, to some uh, news about one of the brightest young stars in the Premier League, someone who has certainly attracted lots of uh, admirers and attention for his performances for Brighton Hove Albion. And of course, that's right wing back Tarek Lamptey, who has only just turned 20 uh, already in the last window, as we reported. Uh, he was being scouted by Bayern Munich. Uh, since then, both Atletico Madrid and Sevilla have showed an interest in him. Brighton themselves have uh, been clear about not wanting to sell the player whom they recruited from Chelsea in uh, the January window this year. Um, the reported fee was £6 million, although our understanding is it was significantly less than that. Um, but, Duncan, you've got an idea of what um, Brighton may look for in terms of fees should suitors come knocking on the door next summer or even in January for that matter and indeed uh, news about um, a possible new contract for the player. Yeah it's a, a stellar rise from Lamptey. Um, my understanding is that fee was 3.75 million which people thought was substantial at the time. Um, I think you're looking at an asking price of perhaps 10 times that um, for clubs like Bayern and uh, Atletico if um, Brighton can do what they intend to do which is extend and improve the player's contract and, and I believe that they're they're due to open formal discussions on that soon. Um, he has made eight Premier League starts this season, one goal, three assists, um, following on from the eight he made at the tail end of last season with one assist. Um, now in England under 21 international uh, as you say, Bayern were interested very early on, having seen uh, what he was able to deliver for Brighton at the tail end of the season. And it kind of fits this picture of top clubs seeking to buy um, high-quality attacking fullbacks who have pace and, uh, and can produce um, and deliver goals at the, at the other end of the field. Um, there was no way that deal was going to happen because, as, as we reported at the time, Bayern only had €15 million Euros to spend uh, and Brighton would not sell for that price. I think Brighton's strategy and, and stance is quite fair towards their players in that um, the owner, Tony Bloom, kind of makes it clear that he won't stand in players' way if they get offers from big clubs uh, and the money offered by those clubs to Brighton is... Uh, meets the asking price uh, is, a, is a realistic fee for a player of that talent um, what they can do by uh, improving his contract which is about 1.5 million pounds a year at the moment um, is extend uh, the duration of the contract give him more as a basic salary and, uh, and, and set it up in a way it's going to be more expensive for those big clubs if they want to buy him, if he continues to improve at the, at the, the level he has so far in his, his career. But they've, um, they've shown themselves, I think, to be very astute to get him out of Chelsea at the time they did. Obviously, Chelsea had quite a lot of personnel at right back. 
Um, and they had Rhys James there, who's now a full England international, and I think one of the most impressive young English players in the Premier League. So it was difficult to show Lamptey uh, a, a career progression path. But my understanding is that Lampard had, had, would have preferred to keep um, the player at the club uh, and wasn't able to do it. Um, but yeah, Brighton have done well there and uh, should either end up with a, with a top performer going forward or a, a very substantial return on that transfer fee they paid to Chelsea. Well, coincidentally, Duncan, um, Tarek Lamptey was interviewed well on England under-21 duty this week, actually, and um, explained that he went through quite a process with regards to making a decision to leave Chelsea. He did uh, mention what you've already said, that he looked at his potential career path at the club. Obviously, the club captain, Cesar Azpilicueta, um, is in his position. Rhys James, also in his position. And he made a decision for his career, having consulted with his family and his agent, and decided that the best thing for him to do would be to go to a club where he would play. And obviously, Brighton... Uh, gave him that opportunity, have given him that opportunity, and he is showing himself uh, to be, said, one of the rising stars in the English game. So no surprise that big clubs in Europe are taking an interest. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see how he develops over the course of the rest of the season as well, given um, the quite impressive start he's already made. You, Ian, you know Brighton well. What's the, the feeling within the camp about Lamptey and, and um, how far he can go, given the, given how strongly he started? Because sometimes with, with players of this type, you can have that first impression where you catch the rest of the division by surprise with your qualities and then you can see players hitting a brick wall, particularly English ones because they get that extra bit of attention because of their nationality. Yeah, from um, speaking to some of the Brighton players uh, in the squad, if you ask about Lamptey, the first th- first thing they say is, don't bother trying to chase him in training because you're never <laughs> going to catch him. <laughs> as uh, as we've mentioned before, there are some players who have who are fast and there are some players who have another gear. Lamptey's probably got another two gears. He can actually speed up when he's at, you think he's at full tilt, he can go again. Um and so he is very highly regarded. Uh, the club, I think, put in a lot of work uh, when they tried to, to sign him when they went and met, met his family and his representatives, etc. Actually met his, uh, his agent and the other agent who brokered a deal um, at the Amex Stadium before he signed. And um, they were discussing some of these details with me and I know some of the... Um, lengths that Brighton went to in terms of uh, selling the club because let's face it, the guys at Chelsea he could have stayed, played Champions League football, possibly if there was an injury on the right side remember he can play right wing as well and Graham Potter's been playing a back three uh, this season with Lamptey as a right wing back and, and pushing high up the pitch other thing is though as well Duncan he he can defend you know, his, his pace is a massive attribute, not just going but getting back as well and his tackling ability is very accurate um, and I think I've seen him a few times make that tackle on the right side of the pitch which takes the ball away from you know an opposition player before they get to the point of crossing passing or in, a, some, in the danger zone of the box so um, yeah I think he's got all the attributes uh, look I think he goes as far as he wants um, 
Reminds me a little bit of Ashley Cole, um, although of course not as anywhere near as experienced or accomplished as yet. But Ashley Cole, when he was Lamptey's age, was playing for Arsenal and impressing in a similar way. And Ashley was, as we know, capable of getting forward as well as defending with um, excellence. So yeah, um, as I said, I'm not surprised that there's interest been shown by major European clubs. Um, Brighton, you know, realistically can't compete with the likes of Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid um, with regards to holding on to them in terms of what they can offer and uh, in terms of, you know, the way they compete in the leagues. But at the same time, um, smart move by Brighton to uh, offer him a new contract. Uh, as you said, that increases his value, his sale value, as well as makes the player feel wanted and uh, valued at the club. So, um, and I think he's deserved it as well, uh, even though he's only been there since January. So um, I think it's a very bright future for the lad, that's for sure. But uh, as I said, it will be really interesting to see how much he develops, uh, given that he's now getting the chance to play every game because uh, that's something he's not had in the Premier League until he arrived at the Amex Stadium. You, you said no one can catch him in training because he's got those two extra gears. Obviously, that wouldn't have been the case while friend of the podcast, Glenn Murray, was still uh, with Brighton. Now, Glenn would just take him out <laughs> before, before he got to his first gear. <laughs> I'm not sure if he did do that while he was still there, but we can ask him next time he comes on. So from one club prospering uh, from the signing of a young player to another, which is struggling a little bit with regards to injuries, a bit like Liverpool, Duncan, and of course it's Manchester City and their striker situation with Sergio Aguero now out for four to six weeks, we believe. And uh, we did say on the podcast on uh, Tuesday of this week that uh, their attempts to speak with Lautaro Martinez of Inter Milan's representatives regarding a move to uh, Manchester um, were being hindered by the fact they couldn't guarantee that Pep Guardiola would be the coach, nor could they say who might be the coach or who would be the new coach. Since then, it's our information that City have stepped up their search for a striker because in the, they realise that they are short in terms of point strikers, which is something I think Pep Guardiola pointed out in the summer to the club, but they decided, that, well, and he decided to be fair, to prioritise central defence. However, we also understand that they are willing to take a relatively short-term approach to this um, and sign maybe a more experienced player at a lower price in January. Um, one agent that we spoke to who deals with Manchester City said that uh, everyone knows how difficult it is to buy goals in the January window. Sometimes you just have to lower your expectations and if, hopefully that means you can lower your layout in terms of cash as well. I know, Duncan, this is a very kind of difficult situation for City because you think about uncertainty over the manager, um, inconsistent form, uh, they've got a striker who is like you know the club legend, who is increasingly looking uh, fallible in terms of injuries, especially muscle injuries. It seems like they do have to do something fairly serious in order to look more long term if they get the chance. It's an important position um, for any team, 
I think it's particularly important at Manchester City because they create so many chances. Um, you know, those, those cutbacks into the area um, which they expect a centre forward or one of the other forwards to be on the end uh, of to, to complete. Um, if they don't have the right person there, you see them losing games or drawing games that they would normally win. Um, and, and, you know, quite often with City, it's getting the first goal is important. If they, when, when they get a goal, that forces the other team to come on to them and then the, the, the quality of their attack is such they tend to, you often see them winning games 4-5-0 um, because the opponent has been forced on to them. Where if you have that frustration where Raheem Sterling has been used there on numerous occasions, but he's not yet an elite finisher, um, you see him missing chances you'd expect Sergio Aguero uh, for example to score there's been a lack of confidence or, or a lack of certainty that Gabriel Jesus was a long term answer um, as we told you on the podcast before they were prepared to sell him the summer before last Dortmund um, Jesus refused to go um, they were at that time looking at Jean-Felix as um, a long-term solution and weren't able to do that deal because Jesus didn't go. They have been working on extending Aguero's contract um, prior to uh, the summer window. That has not happened yet. And I think there's a decision to be made both ways there. Does Aguero want to stay? at Manchester City and take a, a new contract and do City want to invest a substantial amount of money in retaining him given his lack of availability through injuries this season and and yes there, there's also the short term consideration which is this might be the last season of Pep Guardiola um, as you've reported they've been trying to extend his contract and Guardiola has refused to engage in those discussions so far. Guardiola wants to win this season, Abu Dhabi want to get the Premier League title back and they also want that Champions League that they've been pursuing since the start of this most expensive project in the in the history of the sport. So this season is an opportunity, they need to get things done. They do have their capital available of course should Abu Dhabi sanction spending on a, a striker in the January window. And, and you, you have those two options available to you that, that you outline, which is go for someone for the short term, um, a, a quick fix, perhaps difficult to do because you have to fit into Guardiola's system without an adaptation period. Um, or do you try and take advantage of the COVID market and the uncertainty around a lot of other clubs in Europe? And you know, it's only really the Premier League and the top end of the Premier League that's con continued to spend at a high level. Do you take advantage of that to pick off a top striker or try and pick off a top striker in the January market? They were looking at this in the summer. Again, something we reported on the podcast that they were, they looked at the end of the window when they saw they had these issues to try and get that striker in. Um, they didn't do it. Guardiola's account is that they couldn't afford to do it. I think more realistically is that they decided they didn't need to do it at that point. Now the pressure on them is greater because they've slipped down the, the league. Um, and therefore you, you will have Guardiola pushing for something to be done. Uh, and, uh, and perhaps Chiki Bergeristan, I think, uh, keen to get something done so he can get that another title on his CV and hopefully that Champions League 
title before uh, the strong possibility that Guardiola exits. I wonder, Duncan, and I don't think he's this kind of personality that uh, giving him a present, let's say a late Christmas present, of the likes of Lautaro Martinez and just basically paying whatever it is that Inter Milan want for the player. But it would certainly be expensive and certainly in excess of 70 million euros. They would hope that by investing in Pep, Pep might invest in them and sign a longer deal. But as I said, I don't think Guardiola is that easily bought. Uh, if he's already decided that this is his last year, it will be his last year. And I think the ideal scenario for Guardiola certainly is that he doesn't have any talks about his contract. He waits until the Champions League campaign is completed. Ideal scenario, he wins the Champions League and then just leaves on a high. Uh, and that's how things would play out in his dreams, as it were. So even if they did win the Champions League again, him staying, I think, would still be a 50-50 shot. Well, this is the second podcast of the week. And that means, of course, it's time for the Donkey Award. You will have heard at the beginning of the pod, Duncan and I reveling a little bit in the magnificence of Scotland qualifying for their first tournament in 22 years. Please forgive us if you're not a fan of Scotland or uh, indeed you don't want to hear about Scotland. So we are now instead going to make it short and sweet and we're going to designate uh, today's Donkey Award to Stevie Clark, the Scotland manager, because today we're awarding the donkey as the Steve Clark Award for making the impossible possible. Duncan, I'm just going to open the envelope here. There we go. Excellent. Ah, so we have three very good nominations here, Duncan. Um, Two very impossible ones, actually. Uh, I'll go first with... Greece's remarkable victory at Euro 2004 against all the odds, including Portugal, who were the hosts, of course, that year. Um, we also have uh, Leicester City, of course, and Claudio Ranieri's uh, most unlikely Premier League title in uh, winning the league in 2016. And then we have also in 2016 England losing to Iceland in the quarterfinals of the Euros that year, therefore pulling defeat from the jaws of victory, as it were, or possible glory. Duncan, I'll leave it to you to uh, make your decision. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exclude England from this, Iceland and England immediately, because as we all know, um, with the England national team, uh, a defeat of that nature is always possible, particularly in major international tournaments. In fact, they've kind of specialised in, in messing up in major international tournaments. So I don't think that one qualifies as, as making it. It would never happen to possible. Scotland because we don't get there, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we, just, we just have those kind of results in qualifying. <laughs> yes, this is true. Um, then it's a tough... This is actually a very tough call. Um Greece winning the European Championship was out of nowhere. Um, Otto Rehago um, catching the opposition out with a with a tactical system that they weren't used to to playing. Um, I think easily the most impressive and most unexpected of of uh, international major international tournament victories. But then then you got Leicester City uh, winning the Premier League and again um, doing it with a a tactical system that. 
I don't think it was unexpected, but I think the, the problem, particularly in that season, was the bigger clubs didn't do their homework and notice how good Leicester were with that kind of uh, packed defence and very rapid counter-attacking football and the quality they had up front and actually went and said, OK, we're, going, we're not going to play our own game plan, we're going to play a game plan to counter the way you're doing. And they let the, the teams get ahead. Um, I think I'm going to give it to Leicester because it was ac across the course of an entire league campaign rather than uh, a limited um, summer tournament. But um, it's almost it's almost worthy of the first joint donkey this one, the Steve Clark Award. Maybe we give it to both Rehagel and Ranieri and, uh, and their teams for uh, making the impossible possible. Well... Um... I do reflect still on that season, Duncan, when Leicester won the league, and I still find myself saying, Mark, drink water, mark him, just take him out of the game. <laughs> As he was the one who kept knocking the ball 50 yards to Jamie Vardy for almost every goal. <laughs> anyway, it's easy to say that in hindsight, but I mean, as you said, over 38 games, you might think some tactical genius in the Premier League would have noticed that that's how they played. Never mind, it was a fantastic uh, season to watch as a neutral. So yes, very, very good. I always like a mention of drink water because it reminds me of a, of a comment, a, a contact um, made about Manchester United um, in the, the seasons after that and after drink water had moved to Chelsea and he, he said, um, Chelsea have drink water, Manchester United have, and this player will remain unnamed, um, drink everything. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, since uh, in his recent few months' uh, adventures on loan, I think he's changed his name for Danny to Don't Drink Water. Um, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> That's it for today's podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week, of course, with you with more news and analysis. If you've liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Turn on all your notifications and you'll be told exactly when the new pod is out. Please join the discussion. You know we love to engage with you uh, on at Transfer Podcast, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And on Twitter, Duncan's at Duncan Castles and I'm at Garbo SJ. Have a good weekend, uh, people. Stay safe, be well and thanks for listening. Hey.